0: Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here. Electronically Yours, as always. Uh, today's guest is the legend that is Bill Nelson, most famous with Bebop Deluxe and Red Noise. But having done a lot of research about him, he is obviously prolific to the to the nth degree. I mean, he's been creating stuff pretty much non-stop for the last 45 years. He's a singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer, painter, video artist, writer, experimental musician. He's worked in art rock, experimental art art rock, glam rock, electronic rock, new wave, post-punk, ambient. We get into talking about his process and his incredible, incredible output is, artistic attitude towards his life and work this is genuinely i often say this but this is generally one of my most uh, interesting and favorite interviews i've ever done for this podcast he's an amazing person and he's from yorkshire which is even better here he is bill nelson Since the very start, when I've been putting the call out for people who, who would like—I'd like—they'd like me to interview—your uh, name comes up probably in 25% of the requests. It's interesting, so um, that's why I've been so keen to track you down because you're a man of mystery. <laughs> Do you? Um, Do you regard yourself as a, more as a kind of, shall we say, in broader terms, an artist more than a musician?
1: Um, Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Uh, uh, You know, um, well, making music's an art anyway, so that kind of comes under the same umbrella. But I consider myself uh, not so much an entertainer, I entertain by... (laughs) Not by mistake, I was going to say, but um, if if the music happens to 10 people, then that's great. But I don't set out to to make music for a a particular market or or person or whatever. It's really just, I amuse myself doing it, and and that's the starting point, really.
0: That's a noble um, ambition, Um, as always with people who are artistically driven, um, it's kind of relying on fate to a certain extent to be able to make enough money out of it to survive.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but, I mean, you know, I've always followed your career and um, it what you just said completely makes sense to me because you clearly view yourself as a an artist in the broadest sense of the word, which is why I asked the question. And uh, a lot of the stuff you do is done without... Um, reference to any kind of commercial imperative, I think, and I truly admire that. But there must have been points in your career, uh, particularly with Bebop Deluxe, where you were being lent on by the record companies to to have hits and inverted comments, Was is that the case? Yeah, to a
1: degree. Um, there are a couple of things with, with this. It, it, I was a lot younger then, um, I was in my 20s, and you tend to, uh, at that age, and you know, turning professional for the first time, mm-hmm. you do have one eye on uh, the commercial aspects of it, and, and uh, whilst there was pressure from the record company to a certain degree, um, there was also self-pressure, on, you know, because we started to get a, a bit of a, a following and and uh, that built up and we went to America and all that sort of thing. So the commercial aspect does come into it, I think, at a p- particular time. Um, but I, that rapidly became sort of less and less of an interest for me as time went on, which is why I didn't continue with the band. I mean, it, it, if we just stayed together, like the, I don't know, like the Stones or the Who or somebody that's still out there doing the same thing, you know, we'd have been trapped in that syndrome of having to play the old stuff all the time. And I was, al- I was already feeling a bit tired of that uh, back then, so uh, it, it seemed the right thing to, to move on and uh, try and come up with something that could be more flexible um, and less, less, you know, less so sort of commercially pressurized
0: i think it's fascinating um that clearly you you regard this as as, as utterly normal and <laughs> uh, and uh i assure you and i'm sure you understand that it's not normal in today's world for people to have such a shall we say a pure view of their own craft and their art and um let's just move back to the fact that you're a fantastic um, guitar player, as everyone knows, and uh, and uh, not only uh, in technical terms but in creative terms, and um, where where did that all come from? How did you? What was your musical training when you were younger? Because I've done some research and I couldn't find anything.
1: Because right. <laughs> <laughs> basically, there is no musical training.
0: Right. So you um, self-taught.
1: I, yeah, I started um, about. I think about 10 years old, um, with a, a toy guitar, plastic toy guitar. I had a picture of Elvis Presley on the head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was made by a company called they but quite rare. I've got I've got um, a couple of them. Um, wow. Which I've found, you know, team players and things, but uh, my original one is long gone. But um, And I'm out how to play, I think, what was the third man theme? which was a pretty simple tune to pick out
0: dun, 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 that one yeah. yeah
1: and my dad was a saxophonist and he, he tried to teach me to play the saxophone when I was eight and um, he was teaching me from the point of view of uh, of reading and writing music you know and I just couldn't grasp how those dots on a piece of paper related to music uh, and he gave up on me. He thought, I'm never going to You know, he want a musician. So I, but uh, just, you know, had no real, uh, anything about, you know, anything about music properly. And, and, and then I started playing at ten. And then he, he realized that I'd got, I'd worked out this tune, third man tune. And he originally had played, um, banjo. And he knew some, ukulele chords, and so on. So he showed me three ukulele chords, and I got those, okay. And that was the extent of my, my training <laughs> on, on guitar, which is these um, three chords. And then um, I heard there was a, a, a single by American guitarist called Wayne Eddy, and was right. called Because They're Young. And it was used as a theme tune for a, a radio program. And um, I remember one day I was off school with Flu and my mum went out and bought me the single. And I just loved the sound of the guitar. And uh, I made a cardboard uh, copy of Dwayne Eddy's guitar. No. Not not one that played, but one that looked okay when you stood in front of the mirror. (laughs) And uh, i used to mime along with the record, you know, with this this cardboard record. I loved it. Yeah, a bit by a bit, then the shadows came along and um, again, Marvin's guitar sound was something that I liked and uh, my dad decided to buy me a proper guitar and he got me a second hand acoustic and um, I started trying to work with that but it was, it had strings that were about an inch and a half off the neck.
0: And oh, was, it was so hard, I tried to learn guitar when I was young. That's why I ended up playing synthesizer, because it hurt my fingers too much. Yeah, yeah. so, so I, I kind of
1: almost gave up at that point, because it was really you know, hard on the fingers and everything. And then I met a friend at school who was at about the same stage as me, and the two of us decided to get together and uh see what we could figure out between us. Um so I, I picked it up again and I remember the first thing we managed to work out to play together was Walk Gold Run by the Ventures and um, we both played the rhythm part, the chord part at the same time and we were sat there and looking into the playing this rhythm. And um I thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> you play the rhythm, I'll play the tune. Wow. And I worked out the tune, and that was it, that was the turning point, you know, we realised that's how we, and uh, we went on to form a little school band, and, and uh, it went on from there.
0: What was your first electric guitar then? Sorry, did I miss that?
1: It, it was um, uh, an Antoria, which was uh, a Japanese guitar that looked a little bit like a Fender Jaguar but it wasn't a direct copy. I had three pickups and uh, my dad got me that for Christmas. And,
0: and how old were you then?
1: Uh, probably about 12 I think, yeah. Lucky you. Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an expensive guitar. But, um,
0: and what amp did you have?
1: Um, well, I, I had a little Rosetti Lucky 7, which was a small, about five watts, I think it must have been. Um, Your parents didn't want you to make too
0: much racket in
1: there. <laughs> I don't think anybody made a lot of racket then with yeah. it. There wasn't that kind of power around with that, so. Um But then then after, after a while, uh, as I got better on it, and the, you know, the school band was playing different gigs, uh, youth clubs mostly, my um, dad decided I should have a proper guitar and, uh, he bought me uh, a Gibson, uh, ES345 stereo guitar, which yeah. had a Boris all the way through bebop as well. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and a Voxamp, um, to go with that. And I, I went through, as I, you know, I left school, I went through different local bands, a band called Group 66, and, um, a band called The Teenagers, who weren't actually teenagers, were all in their 30s apart. <laughs> <laughs> They'd been playing for quite a long time in Wakefield, and uh, I, I was the only many teenager in the band. Um, and a band called The Midnight Creepers, and uh, uh, back, I don't know, Our uh, Global Village was another one. This yeah, yeah. was a kind of a psychedelic.
0: So, were you singing at this time? No, no, I, I didn't. Um, were you writing songs?
1: Kind of, I regarded singers as being a, a necessary evil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel the same way.
1: <laughs>
0: no, I don't. I don't.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, so, so. No, I was just playing the bass player in Global, Bridge used to sing, uh, and I just played guitar. But then I started working on songs, writing songs, and um, I got a bunch of songs together. And there was a recording studio in Wakefield which wasn't really a recording studio it was a guy's back bedroom which he built um, a sort of homemade little mixing desk and had a a two-track tape machine and the studio was called Holy Ground and um, they'd done some um, album released some albums on their own label uh, of local folk musicians and stuff and I ended up getting involved Playing on a couple of them, and then by the time I got these first batch of songs with him, um, they said, "You know, come in and, and, and record them." So, so that became an album called Northern Dream. John Peel got hold of that and played the entire thing on his radio.
0: God, how many people's careers would not not really have happened were it not for John Peel? Our ours with the early Human League, I mean. That was the reason why we got signed because he played being boiled on the, you know, on his program regularly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I never, I, I, you know, I, I saw him several times being to his house and things, but I could never get over the kind of um, my God, he's up there, and I'm down here, you know. Yeah. It, I, I was a bit anxious around him because he was such a, a, a potent figure, you know. And I been listening to Peel. Long before I did Northern Dream, I mean in the 60s I was listening to his radio show and um, buying imported American West Coast underground records that I'd heard him play on his show, you know, things like Jefferson Airplane and uh, Buffalo Springfield and so on. So, yeah, in the state that went and, and I actually saw him two weeks before he passed away. Um, I hadn't seen him for years. And I went down to London to do an interview with, I think it was Phil Jupitus um, at, at Broadcasting House, and in the fire upstairs, um, music, Six Music or whatever it is, he was sat doing an interview with a, a journalist, Um he spotted me and waved me over, and we sat at had a, a really nice chat, and and then uh, I went
0: off to do the interview. And then the next thing I knew, you know, he passed away. Oh, it's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I've only ever met him a couple of times. And oh, we've done his show. We we did sessions and stuff. But yeah. only ever I actually met him for, you know, uh, on a friendly basis, at a couple of festivals, and you know, I mean, yeah. we we need these people, you know, and not just on national radio, but just generally, you need we need advocates for good music and that's why you know when radio 6 looked like it was going to get ditched cool. um I got involved in the and together with lots of other people got involved in the campaign to keep it open and I'm thank god that it is like a shining beacon of yeah. uh, anything interesting now isn't it on on the on national radio yeah um so let's go back to um Let's go back to so so the Northern Dream album. Yeah, um, how successful was that?
1: Well, it was only pressed up in I think it was two hundred and fifty or three hundred copies. Oh my
0: God, that must be rare. Then people must be after that.
1: Yeah, it's been actually. It was it was the actual funding for it, it was done by a local record in Wakefield. Right. Yeah. and um. When Bebop Deluxe, um, started to, to get somewhere, and we were, we were touring America, and we did a, an in-store appearance at a, a record shop in Los Angeles, and I, looked, I was looking through the racks of records, and there were several copies of Northern Dream, and I thought, what are the- we here? How's that got here? And it turned out that the, the people at the record shop in Wakefield, I'd realised there was money in this, and started pressing up more copies. Cheeky? And distribution and stuff.
0: Cheeky buggers!
1: <laughs> so, um
0: And you know you never got paid anything for that, did
1: no, you? No, 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 I never... I never got anything from it. Um I mean, I remember that before this actually happened, when they did the re- before the repressing, when the original uh, 250 or 300 were pressed, <coughs> let me have a, a free album occasionally, you know, and i, I go in the shop and i have been looking at, you know, some, some album over other, and i go to buy it, and they'd say, oh, all right, you can have it. <laughs> so, so that was about the best I got out of it. But in, in more recent years, um, it was reissued by uh, Cherry Red, who did um, a really nice vinyl reproduction with, you know, the original kind of sleeve and, and everything. Um, so,
0: yeah. so moving on from that um, what came next then I mean I, I, I've got on my list here yeah, obviously it, there's a big leap up to um, uh, live in the air age um, but there must be something between 73 and 77
1: as as a result of, of John Peel playing Northern Dream on, on the radio um, an A&R guy at EMI heard it and decided to get in touch and asked me to go down to uh, Manchester Square where my headquarters were. And um, I went down and um, they, want, they wanted to sign me as a solo artist and put me in the studio to re-record the songs on Northern Dream, <clears throat> but with, um, with with session musicians. And I just at that point in time, I'd, I'd just formed but the 1st lineup, line-up um, and we have been into Hollywood Studios and recorded I think three songs which had had done for the band and so I said to the EMI A&R man well um, I've got a band now <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not interested in redoing Northern Dream I thought tape with me cassette tape and left it with him. and he then got in touch and said well it's it's interesting, but it's early days yet. You, you know, Van just called me. Said we'd like to come up and see you uh, play live um, in in a few months' time. So they did that. We were playing. By that time, we'd actually got a really good local following. So, uh, we were doing a gig in Leeds at a place called the Staging Post, which used to get absolutely packed out when we played. And the um, the the A and R guy and another guy came up from my. And we're in the audience. And then they said afterwards, said, well, we think this is just a local phenomenon, you know, it's going kind to of translate to London. Uh, but we still want to offer you a, a deal on, on your own. And I said, no, you know, I like this. these are my mates, I'm sticking with them. And um, and this went on for a little while. They, they kept coming back and still the same story, no, we don't want the band that will sign you. And then we got we landed a gig at the Marquee in London Marquee Club um, supporting a band called Spring Driven Thing.
0: Oh, I remember them. I bought their album. I thought they were
1: really good. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we played the Marquee, and the audience really loved us. And the EMI guys again had come to see how we'd go on in London. And then it was, I think it was a guy called Luke Fisher who was the head of N R. Um, he came backstage and said okay, okay, come see us tomorrow we'll talk about deal." so that's how, that's how we got actually the record deal, and, and we then did the, the first album which was called Acc- Accident
0: <coughs> Accident, <laughs> nice
1: and then, and then um, I
0: get it, I, know, I, know, I understand the irony yeah, and then,
1: and then um, we went on tour with Cockney Rebel
0: Oh, great.
1: And um, that was really good for us because Cockney Rebel at that time had some chart success. Yeah. They were playing to reasonable audiences, really sized audiences. And, um, but during that tour, I kept saying, you know, you need a better band around you. And I kept saying, no, it's fine, you know. But at the end of the tour, I realised that I'd watched Cockney Rebel every night. I thought, yeah, you know, they had a lot more. Professional than than, um, than than we are, um, and so I decided, as hard as it was, to pull the plug on the band and look for other musicians. And, and as it happened, to
0: I'm sorry, can I just stop you there? Yeah. Because I, you know, obviously with the Human League, we had a split and everything. and it's really difficult when when you know, you've grown up and developed to a certain point with a bunch of friends and then that all goes wrong. Or or you need to shed a skin and move on. Um how did that feel to you? I mean, did you feel bad about it? Did you how how did it how did that rinse out? Um, I didn't feel
1: great about it, that's no. for sure. Um and it I guess it it was difficult. Um I mean looking back on it now I don't know how all I all I can say is I, I must have had a certain amount of ambition to push ahead with it. And, and and the last gig we did, uh, with that line at the first round, um was at uh, the roof gardens so of Beepy's in Kensington.
0: Yeah. I know that place.
1: And at the end of the gig it was all it was all a bit sour, you know, with it. particularly with the bass player. He he really um felt he'd been let down. Um, I think the drummer and the rhythm guitarist, who was actually the guy that I started playing guitar with at school, they realised that things they were, they were, they were getting a bit out of their league uh, and were kind of okay with it. Um, but they' bass player held a grudge. Um, and, it, yeah, we, we it, it's like, we, you know, there was not so much arguments about, you know, just splitting up. The gear, who gets what? Oh and, and right. Sort of stuff, you know. Anyway, um, I went on with uh, at first um, two members of Cockney Rebel, the keyboard player Milton Ream James and the bass player Paul Jeffries, uh, decided they, were, they wanted to quit playing with Steve Harley, and they sort of joined up with me. And uh, um, Milton um, introduced me to a drummer called Simon Fox. Uh, who was from Birmingham, where Milton was originally from. And we had some rehearsals and we did some gigs with, you know, with, with Simon and uh, Milton and Paul. But it still didn't feel right. It had, it, it, it seemed a bit, I don't know, it was, it was a bit uncomfortable. Right. It wasn't anything to do with personality, so we all got on. Um, so I decided to, to keep Simon because I thought he was uh, going in the right direction. And then put auditions out for another bass player, and eventually a keyboard player as well, um, and, and that became the the main big lineup that did
0: all the other albums. Right, and um, so all this time you're kind of developing your your chops as a guitarist, and you must presumably at this point have be, started to become more interested in. Um, well you weren't making album, ambient albums at that time but you were coming it seems to be you must have been more interested in not just the traditional guitar rock and roll stuff but um, more textural stuff
1: yeah yeah um, I mean there was a point um, during Big um, career when I managed to get my hands on a mini monk and it, it we were managed by um, a company called Anna Carter, And Anna Carter also managed a band called Hudson Ford.
0: Oh, I remember them,
1: yeah. Um, I think they were a spin-off from the Storlogs. But um, anyway, uh, they bought Hudson Ford, they bought a, a synth, a, a minimum synth, and couldn't figure out how to use it, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to sell it. So I bought it and took it home. And, um...
0: It's I, not the world's most complex synth, is it? Let's face it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, uh, so, so, yeah, I started uh, writing with it. Um,
0: what year would that be, then, do you think, roughly?
1: Oh, gosh. Oh, when would it be? 76, probably. Um, and eventually, oh, oh, well, we had, um... Keyboard players, uh, yeah, who was and and uh, Andy, Andy Clark, and um, Andy was playing electric piano and Mellotron,
0: great,
1: most of the time. Um, but then you know, when I got the, the mini mode, I said, "Oh, we should have one of these as well." So he he got mini moves, and we did an album called uh, "Drastic Plastic." Mm-hmm. And I'd actually written a lot of the songs using sort of sounds from the Minimoo computer. And uh, at the same time, I got a thing called the Hagstrom Patch 2000 guitar. And this was, I don't know if it was the first, but it certainly was one of the very first synth guitars.
0: I wrote. sorry, what was it called again? The
1: Hagstrom? Hagstrom. It was made by a company called Hagstrom. Right. And it was called Patch 2000.
0: Wow. I'd never heard of that.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it it was this, um, basically they had a model called the Swede, and it was basically a from Swede, but they put, uh, the, inside the neck was, it was really compact, so it had um, all the frets were kind of wired up, wow. and the the signal as a string touched a fret, it generated a voltage. Down inside the neck and out of a separate connection to a, a, a foot unit that had a couple of pedals on for Glissando and so on. And then that went into the Mini Moog.
0: So it's CV, was it was CV and gate?
1: Yeah, I guess it was that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it controlled the Mini Moog. Wow. And, and I, I used it on a track, uh, a couple of tracks one called Electrical Language, and um, one called Futurist Manifesto. And, um, but,
0: you know, it, it sounded just like a mini-movie, so you, you wouldn't know it was a guitar, really. But, but, Could you, know. you do um, string bending on it?
1: No, no, you couldn't, because um, the sensors, there were like six sensors under each fret. Right, right. And as you pull the string across, there'd be a dead... Uh, that's a pity. where it wouldn't, wouldn't register
0: anything. Yeah, because we used a um, in the early days. We we had a guitarist who had a Roland oh, yeah. G, whatever it was, yeah. and uh, they that could actually do that could track the uh, note yeah. bending and stuff, which made sense of using a guitar then, because you could use the guitar techniques as yeah. for doing things that you couldn't do with a synth
1: anyway. Yeah. The problem with the real problem with it was that the guitar itself. Um, obviously has tuning issues you have the anomaly of things not being quite you know, perfect on the guitar and then that went to this box say the signal was sent to this box which also had a tuner on it um, not a tuner as a slow tuner but something that could tune the note oh, right. you had to get that in sync with the tuning of the guitar <laughs> and then when that went into the minimum of course there were three oscillators and they drifted Crikey. So, you know, using it live was a nightmare, so i gradually just drift apart all the different parts of
0: it. So, I, I, I grew quite fond of, um, and we we used to, round about, what was it, seventy seven seventy eight. 78, we used to, we played a couple of gigs at the Marquee, and uh, that was a legendary venue for not having any air conditioning and being extremely humid when it was full. So um, that used to make the oscillators drift like mad. But I yeah. kind of fell in love with the, it just felt more kind of, I don't know, human. The fact that it wasn't perfect. That's the problem yeah. I have with digital synths now. They're just too boring. I think. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, anyway, yeah. sorry.
1: Yeah, that's what you
0: mean, yeah. So tell us about your, um, at this this point, this is right getting to the point where you, you, you're starting to get very visible. Um, we you doing a lot of touring at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were. Um, I, mean, I seem to remember I only had about well, four weeks off a year, and in that four weeks, I'd be writing.
0: Yeah.
1: And then we'd be back in the studio uh, recording, and then then out on tour in the UK and um, sometimes Europe and. But, American name
0: and you were um, uh, uh, and you were building up quite a following presumably was that translating into record sales at
1: all yeah I mean um, we, we, we I, think, I remember we, we had some top ten albums great top 10. Um, but I again <laughs> people find this strange but I never took any interest in how many records we were sending. Right. I wanted to know really you know, and if I thought about asking it was just oh we're on tour and all
0: these people have come to see us this is great and that was it you know? I, um, I I feel the same about because uh, we do quite a lot of touring now and uh, when our agent and he's only being conscientious he goes he starts sending me like uh, pre-sales figures and I'm going no don't don't send me anything not interested <laughs> don't want to know if the, we're going to give the same show if it's 10 or 10,000 people it yeah. make any difference yeah um never being don't let your head be swayed by praise or criticism. exactly just just go straight on what you want to do and do it exactly so yeah i was um, I've, I've obviously i mean good lord your wikipedia page is incredibly detailed and and uh, long compared to most actually uh, you've done an enormous amount of stuff um an enormous amount uh, for people who don't uh, you need to, I mean, to the podcast listeners, you need to go and do a deep dive into Bill's work because it's incredible. You know, just the, the the amount and the quality is just amazing. Anyway, so um, I wrote down repeating loops and process. I was going to ask you about... Now I'm starting to get interested when I was reading about it, about your kind of experimental attitude towards what you were doing seemed to be evolving at this period. Is that that correct? Yeah. um, Ironically, I
1: I was an art student in the 60s in my teenage years. um, When I was at art school, there was a a production of Ibsen's Pierre Gint and I did an electronic score. I say electronic, it was i have been reading about John Cage Yeah. um, Stockhausen, people like that, and I did a um, a cut up tape experiment, um, just taking stuff I, you know, put recorded and then chopping it up and, and putting it, mix it backwards and, and so on, slowly the speed. And I, I made a um, a prepared guitar uh, similar to John, Page, John Cage's prepared piano yeah. technique. Threading things through the strings and hitting it with mallets and so on, and I did that live with a with a tape machine um, to the uh, play um, on, on the at the, the theatre at the college. Um, so I've been interested in in that kind of approach since being a teenager, um, and uh, I I started to about that again in terms of applying it within the, the, the kind of pop music context. And on um, on Drastic Plastic, the album Drastic Plastic that people did, uh, the track electrical language, we um, decided wanted a, a more kind of robotic drum feel. So we got Simon to play sort of eight bars of a drum pattern and then we just looped it and physically had had it running round on two tape machines um, in the studio and used that as the, the basic track and then I did a synth guitar thing on top of it. Right. And then I did another track called Futurist Manifesto which um, I used uh, a kind of a similar thing to William Burroughs Cut Up Style to come up with some lyrics. There was a, a copy of Country Life sitting in the studio and um, uh, I I sort of did a thing where you throw dice and then whatever number it came up with, you'd count that number of words along and write that word down and then you throw a dice again and then you'd so many numbers further along than that word. So I got all these uh, lyrics by doing that and then I uh, spoke them in, into a the tape and then we copied that. And loop them out of sync with each other, so that they, and have one sitting back in an echo, and one more in your face. I played the piano and a uh, synth guitar on that one. It was just a complete experiment. And um, another thing we did even before that was uh, Abbey Road. I wanted a, an opening piece of music for our live show, and <clears throat> so I did a very Similar to John Cage thing, dropping things into the grand piano at Abbey Road.
0: Betty <laughs> bet <they> loved that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a huge um, way I think, and uh, we recorded it and reverse bits of it and and so on. And it was a piece which I called Blimps, and we used to use it to open the show before we came on stage. So yeah, I've had that interest for a while and 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 liked messing around with sounds rather than just, you know, doing the orthodox guitar stuff.
0: And how did this, um, it's around about this time that you started producing for other people. Is that correct?
1: Um, that would be just after.
0: Just after that, right. (coughs) After bebop, right. Yeah. Uh, um, With John Leckie and you doing some stuff.
1: Yeah, well, John Um, and I had, had worked together on the bebop stuff, um, the first album i fit in with the original band was produced by an in-house EMI producer called Ian McClintock. And then with the second album, which when I got the, at least the first part of the la- new lineup together, um we worked with Roy Thomas Baker who done Queen. And that wasn't, it, it was kind of worked musically because he used a, a really, really talented engineer and the engineer did a lot of the uh, the heavy lifting really and I wasn't that impressed with what Roy Thomas Baker did um, so I went to him and I said "Well, I want I want to produce the next album myself yeah. I, think I, I think I can get my head around what you're supposed to do you know? and and they said oh well you know, you've not got enough experience yet but I tell you what we've got an engineer uh, Abbey Road who's about just about ready to make a joke to a producer um, what if we put the two of you together and you can you know sort of share uh, ideas, so I said okay, and, and then and uh, uh, that's how John Leckie and I started working as co-producers. Okay, so
0: what year was that roughly?
1: Well that would be uh, for the album Sunburst Finish, which was whatever year that came... <laughs> you look I
0: mean it's not a test, it's alright, I'm just curious.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Is it late 70s? It
1: would be about I guess, uh, 75, 76. Oh that early, crikey. Yeah.
0: Because we were we uh, with the Human League, we worked with John Leckie uh, yeah. in 1980, and yeah. uh, he obviously was a fully fledged engineer producer by then. That was just, I suppose, the period when engineer producers were becoming a thing, because it, it was like saving money for the yeah. for the record company and yeah. recording costs as well. But he was really good. I really got on well with John. He's yeah. still doing a load of stuff now, isn't he?
1: He is, yeah. I mean, we still speak, you know, uh, on the phone. He,
0: Send him my love.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, he lives, he lives down in uh, High Wickham I think, and, uh You know, so we don't see each other that often, but we, we talk on the phone and email each other. So, and, and he's always the same. He, he's, you know, as soon as we start talking again, it's like we were only in the studio yesterday. Yeah. You know, it feels like that. He's a really good guy
0: yeah he is so we're on this and then so what did you do what was the album that emerged from the John Leckie stuff well the
1: first one was called Sunburst Finish right and uh, that was I'd been under some pressure from EMI to try and come up with a, a single something we could put out as a single now I, ne- I never thought of this as being a singles pop band it was always you know we're an albums band <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of seriousness and um but I kind of, almost tongue in cheek, wrote a song called Ships in the Night. And as a, an attempt at a, a pop single. And um as it happened, it worked when they put it out. It actually right. did bring people in and expanded the, the audience for the albums, which was at least helpful. But it's still the one thing that if any you know DJs play any bebop up these days, it's always it's in the night, which drives me nuts. You know, it's it's probably the worst thing I ever wrote. I <laughs> uh, just,
2: but I, you know,
1: I, I I I can't really complain because it did the job. It, it did what was
0: needed to get us a, a larger audience. So, yeah, and and so that led on to, um...
1: and then after so the finish, we did. Um, an album called Modern Music, and then we did the Live in the Air Age album, and then we did Drastic Plastic, and then I split the band. Why did you split the band? It was becoming, it was, was like, like being in the army. <laughs> you were know, <you> sent <laughs> off on maneuvers, you know.
0: <laughs> oh god. Was that the touring thing? <laughs>
1: yeah, the touring thing was, was definitely a band. part of it, and the other part was that you always had to play the stuff from the previous yeah. album as well as you know, you, you go out on tour to play a new album yeah. but he was stuck playing he also had to play all the stuff from the, the previous album and the previous album before that and the one before that so it, it was just like I've been going through the motions here you know it's, it's, it's really this
0: nice. is very interesting though Bill because um, most people kind of accept that that's just what you have to do as a kind of uh, in order to sell the the records and maintain a career, but you clearly are always facing the future. I mean, that's clear from uh, the the giant amount of uh, stuff that you've done. Is that you you are a restless artist and you want to continue creating new stuff? Are you do you still feel you like that now?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. Um... I, I, I recognise that that whatever success Bebop had um, set the foundations for me to do more stuff on my own Yeah. in the future. And without that period of, of commercial success, um, I'm sure nobody would, would be listening that. Oh,
0: I think they would. I think they would. Um, but it's a different world, isn't it? It's a bit like you could have easily drifted... No, that's that's pejorative, sorry. You could have easily chosen the path to go into a more kind of art-based version of yourself in, in terms of, out, you know, musical output. Um, and some people uh, make a career out of that and that's what they want to do and that's it. But you had a... Uh, you, you're always, well, not maybe not so much nowadays, but you, it always seems to me that you're on this, in this interesting kind of, if it's a Venn diagram, there's that bit in where the two circles intersect, which is commerce and art, you know, and that's why, I, I, that's why I find fascinating about a lot of artists, actually, not just yourself, but, um, and it's when it drifts in too much into commerce, it stops being fun, you know.
1: yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah.
0: So Uh, so then, Red Noise. um,
1: Yeah.
0: Let's go. Let's move on to that. Um, Tell us about how that emerged. Well, I wanted um,
1: before even before the final Be Bop album, I wanted to to make a change. I mentioned this to the band's management and the record company, and they were very much against it, saying. um, I was
0: doing really well now, <laughs> they they're going we can see our investment going down the Swanny. <laughs>
1: that
0: 's what they're thinking,
1: so they persuaded me basically well, just do one more album, and then we'll think about see what' doing you know so well, the, that one more album was was a classic plastic album yeah the one that, that talking about, and in a sense, it was um. Album. I went away on holiday um, to, to the south of France.
0: Has been got murdered. What's this? Uh, I've, I've got a funny story. I don't, do you remember watching? I don't know if you went to see Devo around about that time. And they, they used to interact with uh, films that they made on the back screen as they were playing live. And one of their little films they made was them going into the record label, going, and the guy behind the desk going, I can forgive you guys for being artists. But I can't forgive you for being stupid, you know, that basically was it. You're messing with daddy's cap. You know, that's how the Americans think about it. Bill Nelson. What a dude. A genuinely lovely guy, driven by his artistic imperatives, uh, that kind of artist I am here for all day, all year and the rest of my life. <laughs> I love the final question. There I go, you know, what have you got coming up? He said, oh, I've got about eight albums in the can, Um, which I personally find very inspirational because I'm much lazier than that. No, no, I'm not lazy. I work hard, but I, I'm not as focused as, obviously, he is on just being creative all the time. Um, how is everyone? Still in the depths of winter? I'm going to make this into a two-part thing. So um, I'm going to release part two probably next week. So I will see you then. Oh, no, wait. If you want to, contact me Martin at dot com. Or please consider supporting the podcast, keeping it free and ad-free and independent. I would really enjoy that. Um, And that's patreon.com stroke electronically ours. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy it. I will see you next week. Bye. More of your emails. Hi, Martin. Oh, this is from uh, Stuart McKenzie. Hi, Martin. Recently introduced to your wonderful podcast when Richard Hawley Part 2 was randomly sent to me. So I've been binging and I'm more than halfway through all your content. Thank you. Coincidentally, I'm sat on a train heading to Sheffield to see Richard Hawley play tomorrow at the Leadmill as part of our four-night as part of a four-night event to raise money in order to block the grabbing hands of property...
2: Property. Property
0: block. developers. Block them. Can I suggest, as a guest, Charlie Birchall of Simple Minds? Yes, you can. I know him well and would be really entertaining. I have his mobile number if needed. We need to chase that up. You should take Sounds some notes. good. I am taking notes. All right, OK. It's uh, a good idea because okay. I know him from back in the day on Virgin. Cute. Okay. Uh, Wait, states. So I just uh, want to get this
2: guy's uh, name. Yeah.
0: Stuart McKenzie. Oh.
2: Stuart McKenzie. McKenzie. He has a contact for Charlie Birchill. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why
0: that one was up because it says eighth of August here. Anyway, we're starting from when?
2: The eighth of August. Oh, is that
0: when we're starting from?
2: Okay. That's what. That's the date on the last. Okay.
0: Oh, I see. Right. Okay. That's it, Stuart McKenzie. Right. Okay. Next one's yours.
2: Awesome. Um, this is from Paolo. Dear Martin, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview with Stephen Morris. He's so personable, isn't he? Keep up your great work. Analogically yours, Paolo. Nice. Thanks, Paolo.
0: Don't know what that means. Um, Simon Hughes. Evening. Just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the series, especially the Steve Morris episode. Nice to hear the occasional Venice and art references, especially as the better half is a public arts curator and has worked on the Biennale. Can't wait for the book. Well, the book's out now. Mm. Go get
2: it. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks, Simon. Um, this is from Alec Way. Hello, Martin, with an I. Just wanted to send praise your way for the conversation with Stephen Morris. You two could have gone on for another couple of hours, it sounded like. Might as well do that again and get Jillian in there on the next one. Good idea. Who's Gillian?
0: His um, His partner.
2: Nice. I'm a moderator for Bill Nelson's official website. Please get Bill on the show and let me know if there's anything I can do for that. Want to. Want to. Write it down. Okay, this is going in our notes. That is from Alec Way. Way, yeah. way at gmail.com. Uh, uh, Bill Nelson. Yeah. Contact. Thanks for that, Alex. Much praise on how you were... Uh, bada- how you make this happen is always interesting informative and fun glad your book's going to be available on audiobook format all the best from Alec thanks thanks so much for that Alec
0: I strongly recommend the audiobook it caused me great pain to record it so you may as well go and get it